Good morning, everybody. Um, the, the, well, first of all, apologies for the fact that uh, originally there were going to be four people on the panel, but various emergencies and family issues have cropped up in the last couple of weeks. But I'm sure we will manage to entertain and enthuse you with this subject area. Um, the, the way we're planning to run this is effectively I'm going to give a 10-minute overview of what I think are the major issues around food and food security. Then Mary's going to give a 10-minute um, pitch and then we're going to have a little bit of a discussion and then open up for questions in the last 20 minutes or so um, and we'll deal with that. There will be roving microphones as uh, has just been said. So without further ado, food. Clearly it's something that's close to all of our hearts. You know there are many things that we can live without but food is not one of them and um, most people need food every day, several times a day, or as craft uh, feed reckon, 18 times a day. They've got a different uh, product for every hour of the day that you're going to be awake. Um, food security has increasingly become an issue um, over the last 15 or 20 years, and food security is defined as the state when all people at all times have access to enough safe, nutritious food. And the all times bit is quite an interesting one because it implies future generations as well as current generations. So inherent in the definition of food security is something about the sustainability of the supply. Many people, when they think about food security to start off with, automatically assume that it's an issue for the developing world. So, you know, poor people starving in Africa. But increasingly, we are seeing the kind of breakdown of the traditional divide between developing and developed world. So in the UK, three million people suffer from malnutrition at the moment. There are five million people in food poverty. 400,000 people took food from food banks last year. Increasingly, we see around the world issues to do with civil unrest, it's prompted by food prices. And there is some evidence, which is quite compelling, that the initial spark for the Arab Spring was increasing in food prices. And, you know, schoolboy history, uh, Marie Antoinette, let them eat brioche, was driven, the spark for the French Revolution was driven by the daily bread getting up to be 80% of a working man's wage. So the issue of food and how it sparks issues to do with civil unrest and civil breakdown is something that is increasingly scary for many of our governments. So why is it an issue? Well, by the middle of the century, so barely 40 years off, we're going to have an increase of about a third on the world's population. So that's the equivalent over the next decade of about 700 cities the size of Leeds coming onto the planet. That kind of gives you an idea of the scale of population growth. But it's not just population growth. The world is getting richer, even if we don't necessarily feel like it at the moment. Um, and richer people want to eat more, and it has ever been thus. The rich have always eaten more than the poor. And the richer you are, the more different sorts of food you also want to eat. So rather unfortunately, the, kind of, the richest in the world aspire to eating a very meat-rich diet, often with beef as the kind of core iconic thing that you have to treat yourself. And beef is incredibly environmentally expensive to produce. So putting those two things together, the population growth and the, the economic growth, then the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN reckons that by the middle of the century we will need 60% more food than we currently produce on the earth at the moment. Other estimates exist, 
50%, 100%, but that, that is more or less taking the demand trend that we see now and projecting forward into the future. One of my colleagues at WWF in the US uh, did a back of the envelope calculation and says, well, if that demand trend is true, then that means we have to supply on the earth more food over the next 40 years than has ever been produced in human history, which again gives you an idea of the scale of the challenge. So, can we do it? Do we want to do it? Can we do it? Well, growing more food is not as easy in the future as it has been in the past, for a whole variety of reasons. Principally, we have effectively run out of land to expand our agricultural base onto. Because everywhere in the world is used for agriculture if it's not rainforest or desert, as a first approximation. So, we cannot just forever go on expanding land. And we might actually have to shrink the amount of land that's available for agriculture because of competition for land for other purposes, tarmac, houses, and so on. We're increasingly competing for water. By 2050, about half of the world's population will not have access to the water that they need. So if we're growing agriculture and growing more produce, where does the extra water come from that will be needed for that? And an issue that is dear to my heart because I'm an ecologist by background, we have to do more about being more sustainable in our agricultural production. A lot of our growth in agricultural production over the last decades has been driven by unsustainable farming practice. So we have eroded the soils, we have lost a whole amount of important things which are not bunny huggers, nice to have attributes of the ecology, but they are deeply important to the ability to pollinate crops, the ability for the small wasps that farmers don't know exist to kill the aphids without having to use sprays, the ability for wildlife of all sorts to live, live on the farms or in the farmed land. We have to do more about conserving that. So if we do need to grow more land and we have no more land available, no, if we do need to grow more food and we have no more land available, then that means we have to intensify production. That's what the intensification is. More food without expanding our, the land area. But we have to do that in a sustainable way. And therein lies the notion, from an ecological perspective, of sustainable intensification. How do we grow yields whilst reducing the environmental impact and even improving the environmental impact? And this debate around whether sustainable intensification is a positive thing or a negative thing is very ideologically driven, and I'm sure we'll discuss it in a little while. The other big constraint that I want to raise is that... Um, the climate is changing. The climate is changing very rapidly. Back in the 1980s, a climate scientist called Jim Hansen, who's just recently retired, said, we will start to get climate change when we recognise that the extremes of weather are changing. And over the last decade, there was a paper published last year in Nature, a decade of extremes. When you look at the pattern of extreme weather, it is becoming quite frightening around the world. The intensity of the extremes the frequency of the extremes and the amount of land affected simultaneously is getting greater. So what used to be in the 50s to the 80s, what used to be something that would happen with a 1 in 700 year frequency is now happening in a 1 in 7 year frequency. And around the world you can see big changes in extreme heat events and so on, drought, um, that are really starting to cripple agricultural production. And for me, that's quite scary, because if you look ahead towards the end of the century, much of the tropics will periodically, i.e. every other year or so, or even every year, be so hot that we exceed the physiological tolerances of plants to flower. 
And if it's so hot and plants aren't flowering, they're not fruiting, and the ability to grow your own food as opposed to rely on importing it from elsewhere is going to be much um, impaired. And partly for that reason, we do have increasingly complex globalised supply chains. So if you think about something like a chocolate biscuit that you might eat, that will have palm oil from Malaysia, it will have soy from South America, it will have wheat from the UK, it will have sugar from the Caribbean, it will have chocolate from West Africa, it will have yeast that will come from a factory, it will probably have salt that might come from China. Most things of, that most people eat most of the time are very globally complexly derived. That's not getting too complex a thing. And at the same time, we eat too much. In the Western world, we eat too much. If you look at our statistics for obesity, uh, back of the envelope calculation based on physiological models show that on average we're eating 300 to 500 calories too much per day. This is not necessarily true in the developing world, although if you just count up the number of people who die from overconsumptive diseases associated, uh, like heart disease, there are more people who die of heart disease in the developing world now than there are in the developed world. We eat too much and we throw away too much food. In the UK, we throw away about 20%, and if, we're, if food prices are a bit lower, we until recently threw away 30% of the food that we buy. So if you think of overconsumption as a form of food waste, and food waste as a form of food waste, you add those two together, then in the developed world, we probably throw away about 30 to 40% of the food. We waste 30 to 40% of the food that is grown. Globally, as richer people want to eat more, the westernised diet has become a bit of an iconic diet, an aspirational diet. But were everybody in the world to eat like we do, the WWF calculates that we need, would need four planets to provide the food. In the long run, we have to cope with the demand side of the issues as well as the supply side. We cannot grow our way into food security by producing more. All that leads to is overconsumption and waste. A bit like, no matter how many lanes we put on the M25, it is always blocked. It's the same. No matter how much food we produce, there is always going to be people who want to throw it away and overconsume it. So in the long run, we have to do something about us and our demand. We have to do something about the environment, and we have to do something about um, the iniquity around the world. So solutions for global food security, we need to have them based on, uh, on equity, not iniquity. But we need also to avoid poverty traps. So it is very easy for us in the developed world to say, the developing world cannot be like us. They cannot have access to technology. They've got to carry on as they are. But that creates a poverty trap, because in many parts of the world, the soils are so poor, you need fertilizer to be able to grow sufficient yields to be able to invest in the biomass to go back into the soil. So there is not necessarily a black or a white. The world cannot be organic. There isn't enough land because organic comes with a cost in terms of yield. It can only be organic if our food demand goes down considerably on a global basis. We have to have solutions based on moderating demand and we have to have solutions based on sustainable ways of production. So I'll leave you with one final thought and that is who has the power to change the food system. You talk to the supermarkets and they say, it's you, it's the consumer, it's all down to you. We give you 12p beef burgers because you asked for 12p beef burgers. 
Horsegate over the summer has really shown that, that that's not true. Consumers say, no, we don't want 12p beef burgers. We want beef burgers. And if you sell them to us cheap, we will trust you. But if we can't trust you, we don't want them. Government takes a step back and says, it's nothing to do with us. It's a market issue. So if the food system is going to change, if we are going to moderate our demand, if we are going to drive sustainability in practice, where has the pressure going to come from? It's got to come from us. We have got to change our attitudes to food. We have got to drive sustainability through the food chain. And I was talking to the chief executives of the food companies the other day, emphasising some, some of these issues. A, a child born today is going to be alive in 100 years' time, almost certainly. What is the world going to be like in 100 years' time? Climate change is going to take us five or six degrees hotter than we are now. In a hot year, towards the end of the century, the UK could be the same climate as Libya currently. What's going to happen in a world like that? It's not just we won't have access to, to food, we won't have access to water. There'll be wars around the world for access to equitable climate to grow your own food. We have got to do something about changing our attitudes to the production of food to make sure that we are not completely destroying the planet in the name of cheap food that we throw away. So that's my pitch. <laughs> Answer that one. Over to you, Mary. Yeah, so um, thanks very much for inviting me here today. So I've taken the title of this session quite literally, and I'm trying to answer the question, where will food come from and what are the implications, but specifically looking at um, hunger and in developing countries, because I work for the Red Cross and that's my... Um, so, so, so that's what, what my experience of my work is at present. So I've divided the question up into individual questions. Um, just first to say, because I work for the Red Cross, the, the Red Cross is impartial and we don't actually have um, um, statements that we make on food policy. So I'm here sort of representing um, the, the aid charities in general. Um, but in spite of that, also just to say that we did produce a World Disasters Report specifically on hunger and malnutrition two years ago. And we commissioned independent um, authors to, to prepare this. And so what, what I'm saying is really what, what's in this report. It doesn't necessarily reflect um, the opinion of the Red Cross. So that's kind of my disclaimer. So what's the current situation to start with? Well, just to say that... Um, Ever since the end of World War Two, the sort of what what we've been uh, there's sort of been a consensus around producing as much food as possible um, on a global level, so that we can bring down prices, uh, with the idea that the global market is going to prevent food insecurity. And we've done that by using industrialised methods of agriculture, um, primarily um, using those in Western countries. And that's been very successful in terms of um, how much more we've produced. So I think the world population has doubled between 1960 and 2000, but the amount of food we produce has increased three times. Um, so actually, we've got a situation with, that we've got more food than, than we need. Um, and the prices have come down, which is what this um, chart shows. So the prices have come, come down since the 1960s. 
until about the early 2000s. And then it started to creep up. And then in 2007, we had the first global food price crisis when prices shot up really significantly. And then they shot up again in 2011, and they've become quite volatile. Um, so we have more food than we need, but we've still got hunger. So, so the model of the market somehow is going to solve hunger doesn't really work. Um, so we've got about, I think, 12.5% of the population globally now living in hunger. Um, and this graph shows, um, the pink line shows the percentage of people living in hunger, how that's changed from 1965 um, to about 2008 or nine, And the blue line is numbers. So... Um, so you can see that the proportion of people living in hunger was decreasing over time, um, although the world population was going up, so, so the numbers were pretty steady. But then in sort of the mid-90s, uh, that sort of situation changed a bit, and that sort of eased off, and numbers started to increase. And then we had this blip at the food price crisis in 2007. Um, so, so, why, so why is it that... Um, We've, we've got so much hunger. Well, I mean, the, the issue is it's, it's not an issue of supply of food. It's an issue of access to food. Um, food insecurity, hunger, is really um, what people in, living in poverty experience. So it's an issue of access. Um, and in places where I've worked, um, where there's been a food crisis, there's always enough food available um, so, for example, I worked in um, Ethiopia once in, in Belosasori, where um, a really severe food crisis, high rates of malnutrition. Um, but there was loads of food in, in the local market. Um, and it was the same with, with the big famine in um, Somalia recently. There was enough food in the markets. So it's an issue of access. And then also the issue with having so much food, as Tim's just said, is that a lot of the food gets wasted, about a third of it, and also it leads to overconsumption. So we've got something like 1.2 billion people who are overweight or obese, as compared to about 850 living in hunger. And that happens in the same country increasingly. As countries' GDPs rise um, in um, sort of developing countries, that, that divide gets bigger. Um, and that's so we get a sort of a rising inequality of hunger and malnutrition and obesity, which sort of reflects actually how um, um, other global inequalities in general have risen from the 90, mid 90s as well. So, who are the hungry? So, that's actually a picture of um, from Belosasori in Ethiopia in about 2002. Well, the people living in hunger in developing countries are primarily, about 70%, live in urban areas and are dependent upon agriculture for their food and income. So smallholder farmers and uh, landless farm labourers. So they're dependent upon um, agriculture as their livelihood. Um, and small-scale farmers actually produce, well, the figures vary, but around, let's say, um, at least 50% of the world's food and about 70% of the food nationally in their country, although I think that goes up to 90% for Africa. So smallholder farmers are actually a very important supply of food now. But the problem is that they're not as productive as they could be. The yields are quite low. 
which means that they actually not able to produce significant amounts um, or sufficient amounts for income. Um, and they're actually, surprisingly, they're, they're net purchasers of food. It means they have to buy most of their food. They spend, you know, they can spend up to like 60-70% of their income on food, even though they're growing it. And they were obviously very um, hit by the global food price crisis as well. And as were people, poor people in urban areas. Oops, wrong way. So, so what's, what's the problem? There are lots of um, causes of hunger and poverty. But if we're focusing on food production, we can see that there's been a lack of investment in agriculture in, um, in developing countries. For the last 30 years or so, the focus has been on Western countries to produce excess for global markets. Um, and even less focus on smallholder farmers. So this slide, this graph shows actually, illustrates how aid from donors in farming sort of increased up to the 80s and then went down. But that's changing now. There's been a recognition that we do need to invest more in agriculture in developing countries and to smallholders to some extent. Um, So... So one of the, another issue about this sort of idea of producing lots of food for the global market by Western countries, another impact that that's had is that it's meant that developing countries have become increasingly reliant on importing food, cheaper food, which has displaced their traditional crops and these smallholders aren't able to compete in terms of in, on the global marketplace. So that's had a negative effect as well. And countries that were formerly self-sufficient, largely in food, have become very sufficient on imports. So in West Africa, in the Sahel area, um, when there was a food crisis, there been, well, their food crisis is about every three years now. In fact, it's a chronic food crisis, but it sort of goes up and down. But they've really suffered as a result of this lack of investment because they're rice eaters and they used to be self-sufficient in rice, but now they're completely dependent upon um, imports, particularly from Southeast Asia, like Thailand. So when the food prices went up, they were in big trouble. Um, The price of rice went up and then with a bad harvest on top of that, there was a real suffering. But again, opinions have started to change on that. They've realized that they need to invest more in their own food production. So in terms of the where food will come from, I think there's going to, there'll be a lot of focus on developing countries to increase you know, productivity there for more food, and particularly Africa, where yields have been very low. Um, but for me, the question really, and the question of contention, is how are we going to produce more food? What kind of methods, and who's going to produce it? Um, and there the policy debate is quite polarised um, and there's sort of a policy tension. So there's all kinds of opinions and there's a whole spectrum from one extreme to another extreme. So um, I'm just going to show you what, what those two ends of the spectrum are about. Hopefully, if I haven't used up too much time already. So... This is one end of the spectrum. So this is really 
um, for those who sort of view the problem more as a lack of supply for the global market. Um, and it's more of a business as usual model continuing on the industrialised agriculture production. And the problem's viewed as a technical problem and we need to use technology and science to improve agricultural inputs within that industrial um, agricultural methods, which means seeds, developing new seeds, and those seeds need fertiliser and pesticides um, and the whole package that currently exists. Now, um, there is a recognition that industrial type of agriculture does have its environmental issues, its impacts, uh, negative impacts that Tim um, spoke about, pollution, reducing biodiversity, carbon emissions. I mean, agriculture produces a third of the, of the carbon emissions in the world currently, um, although 17% of that is actually clearing the land for, for agriculture. Um, as well as soil health. So there are environmental issues and there is recognition of that. So, so it's sort of doing how we're doing now, but doing it in a more environmentally friendly way. So essentially the same model in that respect. And in terms of um, smallholders, some people think smallholders don't have any role within that. They need to get off their land and then big fields and big farmers. Other people think smallholders should be supported, but they should be supported by sort of global ag agribusinesses to, um, to feed the global market. On the other side, the other end of the spectrum, are those who sort of think it needs to be more bottom-up, locally-led, um, supporting smallholders to use agroecological methods of farming which are quite different to the industrialised ones um, and I haven't got enough time to explain all of that um, but things like conservation farming, low tillage um, and the food sovereignty movement is in there and they basically represent the interests of smallholder farmers and they want farmers to be allowed to decide how they want to use their land, to use their own local seeds that are um, better able to cope with all the great diversity in different environments. And there's a lot of evidence saying that um, that approach actually is more resilient to climate change. Um, it spreads the risk as well, rather than using um, monocropping. Um, so it's putting the needs and interests of those smallholder farmers right at the heart, with a focus on women. And that has the advantages of supporting um, their livelihoods, so they're able to produce more food, um, so they're less hungry, and it and also boosts their local rural economies and perhaps will stem some of the urbanisation, the move to the urban areas. And it's more socially, environmentally sustainable. And I've probably got about one minute now. 30 seconds. 30 seconds, and this is the most interesting part. So which way will it go? What are the implications for hunger? Well, it's a bit of a battle. Although I was looking at the, this this morning and I was thinking, well, they're sort of both on the same sort of level hitting each other. Perhaps it's someone from the crowd needs to reach out and grab one of their feet, you know, to pull them down, which is, <laughs> that's a better representation. Um, so basically, which way it will go? Well, essentially, it's a political issue. You know, it's, it depends who's in power. And at present, those in power have a vested interest to preserve the status quo 
um, the business as usual. And those in power really are meaning sort of agribusinesses who, who, you know, there's a huge market to sell seeds and fertiliser and all their products um, to smallholder farmers. And then we've got international traders as well who now... now um, um, there's been deregulation of financial markets that includes food, uh, food commodities. There's so much money to be made from speculating in food, um, and that is part of the cause of the vol volatility, people believe. Um, and then investors, you know, I'm sure you've heard of land grabs, because natural resources, because they're limited supply, have become really valuable now. So people are buying up land in developing countries and particularly agriculture um, to produce food but not even just food it's some people just keep the land because it's a good investment over time it's it's only going to go up in value and all of those sort of things ha can have a negative impact on smallholder farmers and exacerbate hunger um, depending where you're sitting from um, and then we've got in terms of the agroecological more approach it's more out of the box. It requires a paradigm change. Um, it's very... So it's quite a challenge. It's quite scary, isn't it? Because a lot of people will say, well, we need to change the food system. But, you know, how, how do you do that? Um, it's quite scary. But then it's scary not doing anything at all, as sort of Tim explained earlier on. So it's all about power. But I have to say that Oxfam, I think last year, had a... Um, a citizen's jury in West Africa where they invited smallholder farmers and they invited representatives from agribusiness and they had people representing um, agroecological interests and they had a debate, they had a very open debate everyone, the, the, the farmers were sort of like a jury and they could discuss it and the farmers chose the agroecological approach in the end so because it's in their vested interests to do so um, I think I'm going to have to stop now, aren't I? Um, yeah, I will stop. Because I've reached my time. Thank you very much. I almost finished. <laughs> and now Tim's going to ask me some hard questions. I've done a cunning swap of my position. So come and sit. Um, retaining chair's privilege here, I'm going to ask the first set of questions. Um, I'm an ecologist, and I have spent the last 20 years working on sustainable agriculture. And I find the notion that agroecology is going to save, solve the, all the world's problem quite problematic, because ecology doesn't work like that. Um, so I guess my, my, my question to you is, part of the notion of sustainable development is... Uh, promoting economic growth through agricultural growth for smallholders. As they start to raise a greater income from growing their own production, a lot of smallholders don't want to carry on the back-breaking work. So then you have efficiencies of scale that your hectare, if you're lucky, if you buy a tractor collectively in your community with your neighbours' hectares and neighbours' hectares, then almost always that necessarily ends up with some sort of path towards greater use of technology. And the issue of poor soils and building up the carbon content of the soils organically without putting fertiliser in 
is a quite a long and difficult journey, whereas putting fertiliser in, if it's done properly, needn't come with a big environmental cost. So how do you avoid the poverty trap of, of industrialising, your term, I would say intensifying agriculture to allow people to gain the economic growth that they can get without forcing them because of our interests to maintain their status quo in terms of traditional methodologies. We don't say to them, you can't have a mobile phone because that's not traditional. We don't say to them, you can't have a car because that's not traditional. Everybody else lives in the market economy around the world. What is so wrong with a farmer wanting to buy seeds rather than save their own seeds over the winter? Because I know a lot of farmers around the world and they say, I don't want to do this. It's too risky for me. I'd rather be able to source my seeds. So I don't necessarily see there is an evil in agribusiness. Yeah, I'm sorry, sorry if it comes across as evil. Um, I didn't intend that. But, no, 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 um, sorry, that was me, that was me, me <laughs> being needlessly polarising. Yeah, I know, I know. Well, I mean, for, from my perspective, I think the, the key issue is, is allowing um, smaller farmers and uh, farmers in developing countries to be part of that debate, which they're not at the moment. Um, and current... Um, for example, aid, but you know, you've got the Global Alliance mm -hmm. for food, I've forgotten precisely what it's called, the G8 led process. There's, there's no representation from civil society in there at the moment. And I would say that it's up to, if smallholders can be better involved to make decisions themselves, um, then it's up, up to them the way that they go. Um, but it does make stay, it does make sense at this stage in the game to follow agro, more agroecological approaches because um, of the way in which you're probably more of an expert of me but they can restore soil fertility um, and, they, and they are more sustainable um, than other approaches. But they're lower yielding. No, not necessarily. I've actually come prepared with statistics if you want me to use them. <laughs> the, no, I think, oh, I, think ding -dong I mean, I statistics. haven't I'm not an expert on this by any means, but I, had, I did do some research before I came, and there is quite a lot of evidence. There is evidence out there that um, for smallholders, that type of production can be just as productive in yields um, than more standard methods, um, and even more so, uh, and can restore soil fertility, which is much needed. So, um, so I said it's... it's I, I would just like to empower them to, to do that because the situation at the moment is that it's they're not making the decisions, it's us who are making the decisions. You know, there's this, now this big sort of potential to expand uh, and promote, um, you know, uh, seeds and, and agricultural inputs for developing world markets and it doesn't necessarily empower the farmers. So if you can do that in a way that helps farmers make their own decisions, supports them in local markets. It needs some kind of regulation. And the issue is that we step back from regulation. There's an emphasis on the market will solve the problem, deregulation of everything, and the consumer is king. So it's consumer versus citizen democracy in that sense. So that's the way that I would frame it. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, I just want to ask one more question before. Sorry, I could go on all day, but I'll give you a chance. <laughs> so <in a> <laughs> 
the issue of land grabs. Yeah. And the issue, coming back to, to some of our local choices, I have worked on comparing organic and conventional systems around the world for many years. And we did a big study here where we, here in the UK, where we really very tightly controlled um, our uh, choice of sites so that we were comparing field for field, one organically managed and one conventionally managed in lots of different sites. And we found that biodiversity and other nice things went up on the organic farms, but not by as much as we thought that, they would, that it would, whereas yield went down because you're not using the nitrogen fertilisation in the same way and you're losing more to pests and diseases. Um, it, yield, in fact, went down, to, down by about a half. Now, I'm not knocking organic, because I think in many parts of the world, being an organic farmer means that you're a really good farmer, and so you're using um, very good farming practice to keep on top of all of the, of the issues. But roughly speaking, if in the UK we were to eat only organic food, we would have to import twice as much food. If in, in Europe we... Um, went up to 20% of the land area organically farmed, which at one stage was the European Commission's desire, we would have to import land from an air, additional land from an area the size of Portugal. Um, we already import food from an area of land which is about the size of Germany. This would have taken it up by the size of Portugal. And in a sense, that's a virtual land grab. So for me, that raises some of the tensions about some of the issues that you're talking about, that we might choose because we think a local sustainable farming methodology is a good thing for our local environment. By doing that, we import more food from somewhere else in the world. That comes from an area which is less regulated, more biodiverse, more fragile. So we take a local environmental saving and we export it and amplify it to create a global environmental harm, which also has livelihood implications and so on. So I just kind of want to ask you about this, this tension a lot of our food, 50% of the food we eat in the UK, comes from the overseas. And many of the bits of food that we eat are now produced in developing worlds with quite a strong sustainability strand, including social environmental sustainability, including issues to do with companies pledging to maintain the nutrition of the people who work on the locality. So how does our, our choices around our issues of food production in the developing, developed world impact favourably or unfavourably on the developing world with respect to these sorts of virtual land grabs that we do? I think um, I won't comment about organic because I don't know enough about it. For me, the, the main issue is for us, like everywhere else, is to be less reliant on, um, on importing food. Of course we can't, we can't be self-sufficient, we can't grow oranges, well not least yet until it becomes like the climate <laughs> of Libya, but, um, but we need to import more. I mean we've been importing, we've had a policy of importing food, basically letting other people grow food for us since, since the Corn Laws, um, and um, so I think it's good to try and produce food, particularly fruits and vegetables um, that can be grown locally for us to do that. Um, and I've forgotten the other half so, of the question. So our choices in terms of... Oh, our choices. And our choices, well, this is, this is a really big issue in an extent because our choices at the moment are that we're eating too much and we're eating westernised diets, so full of um, high levels of meat 
and dairy and sugar and fat and processed food, which has a much higher environmental cost. And we import that, a lot of that from outside. So I think, and also, as you say, we meant, I think the FAO statistic about increasing food by six, um, 60%. I don't know how much that takes into account how, how um, whether it, that takes into account that the fact that people in developing countries, in middle class people are going to, are starting to eat a westernised diet as yeah, well, which means we need much more land. And you mentioned the statistic that if everyone at like us, we'd need four planets. So we just have to change what we're eating. That's, that's the issue, because cause we can't physically produce, we can't produce enough food for everyone to eat like us at the moment. And the reason why we've been able to eat like this, there are all kinds of reasons, but, but part of that is importing food from elsewhere. So, so yes, I, th I think it's, it's a difficult balance to sort of articulate, but I'm, I would very much support um, us working towards better understanding what a sustainable diet looks like, um, sustainable and nutritious diet looks like, and trying to think of ways to work towards that. And who tells who? In this? So, so, so if we're not importing food, something that I was having a discussion with somebody about the other day, if we're not importing food, we're harming their economic development. So where, wherein lies the kind of social equity in saying we're not going to import food from you anymore if it's the developing world. I and think, who, who makes that choice? I think that Who gets, tells that's, our farmers that's, not to grow wheat but to grow apples instead? It's um, that, that's a really difficult question to answer and I don't think I can answer it. I think there are issues with global trade that um, puts actually um, still puts people in developing countries in a less favourable position to compete anyway. Um, I think we could do more to make sure that food grown in other countries is um, just like um, the um, fair trade attempts to do, or does do, uh, to, make, to make sure that the conditions in which people produce food are better for labourers because I, actually the reason why it's so cheap is because the, the person right at the far end of that food chain from production is the farm labourer and they are the lowest paid of anyone in this country, you know, and elsewhere. So there's all kinds of, it's quite a complex issue that I, I can't articulate magic answers. But I think we need to have more focus in policy, more regulations, more open debate, and think about how we live and how, you know, we're in a big consumer society. We consume a lot of things, not only food. And we need to take a look at that because it's just not sustainable in the longer term. I fully agree with you. Right, everybody uh, senses food insecure in this room because we have run over by a couple of minutes. Um, I won't attempt to sum up. It's bloody complicated. We all have a role in uh, changing our attitudes to food and changing our friends' and children's attitudes to food, so please go away and spread the message that we cannot carry on in the way that we have been in the last decades because otherwise we are up a creek without a paddle. Over to you. Can you all hear me? Yes? Great. Uh, I'm Claire Dryhurst. This is Jackie Ingram. We are the, the president of the Association of Senior Members, but there are two of us, which is very handy. 
in the spirit of community, we'd like to thank on your behalf our two fantastic speakers. So we, we've been so lucky and so privileged to have Professor Tim Benton, who is the UK food champion, and Mary Atkinson, who is the uh, food security person for the Red Cross. And I think between them, they've given us the most stimulating and wide-ranging debate. Uh, intractable questions, the only thing, as Tim summed up, we can all do is to make ourselves better informed about these sorts of questions for our children, for our nephews and nieces, for ourselves, for the future. There is no such thing as standing still. We are facing some really quite tricky stuff, um, cultivating our own garden, um, doing as much as we can to understand what's happening. Uh, we are left with so many questions. So uh, I'd like to say, finally, thank you for keeping to time. Thank you for entertaining us. Thank you for making such a serious question that affects all of us so accessible. And uh, on behalf of uh, all of us, I'm giving them some consumables. <laughs> so Jackie, Jackie will say thank you. As we know, wine is a very, very serious lift to the spirits and, uh, and is using grapes, which are a, a food source for a, a, an extremely nice uh, byproduct. So thank you.